Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 37, Bungalow, recorded on October 23rd, 2022. We have just finished decorating our house for Halloween, but not Guy Fox Day. I wish I celebrated that. One of these years, I'll remember November 5th. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify or Bandcamp or whatever. Today's intro is from the song Centipede, and our outro is from the song Super Groovy. We have corrections today. I thought King Charles would immediately proclaim that his face be put on stamps and coins and currency as soon as possible, but that hasn't happened yet. I am looking forward to seeing what he's going to look like on my money. The Queen really had her entire life captured on currency, including her heyday. KC3, unfortunately, may never have had a heyday, and it's certainly not now in his currency years, so that's too bad for him. Uh, despite being a quote-unquote traditional feature at Chinese restaurants across North America, it turns out fortune cookies aren't Chinese. There's some American innovation employed by American Chinese restaurateurs, so that's neat. It's a neat in- innovation, but it's strange how it's really only succeeded in Chinese restaurants. They'd be fun to have in things like Happy Meals and stuff like that. And uh, this last one here, I haven't found proof of it, but I now believe it to be more true than I ever did. A friend of mine, James, who has since passed, had a knack for telling stories that sounded like jokes. They always sounded completely ridiculous. And he was a fascinating raconteur in, in a way. And one of his stories was of some early hockey game of note. And I can't recall what it was, but once upon a time, it was played on a frozen pond of milk. And it sounded preposterous. I can't recall what match it was or what made it historical or memorable. But And there was no explanation as to why they were playing on frozen milk. But during the pandemic, as supply chains were disrupted, all kinds of businesses suffered from bottlenecking and log jams, including the dairy farmers. And the regular rate of dairy production was much higher than the pandemic rate of production, which resulted in an undeliverable surplus of milk reported in Canada and the U.S. and probably other places around the world. Uh, and if you've got cows ready to be milked, like a hundred of them, you got to milk them, even if there's nowhere to sell that milk. So as a result, there was lots of milk that was being dumped during the pandemic. And, and so an entire hockey rink of milk suddenly sounds far, far more realistic. And uh, I've become a believer. So once upon a time, you can take it to the bank. I don't know how, when, or where there was a hockey game that was played on a frozen pond of milk. Um, Dinosaur News. A review. I went ahead and dug up some old Procompsignathus news for you folks, as we're going to encounter a series of hungry compies crossing the road on their way to finishing off Dennis Nedry. A review of European Triassic theropods from January 2000, right after Y2K, took to exploring the fossil record from Upper Triassic Europe to consider the validity of proposed taxa and the stratigraphical distribution of theropod remains. Quote, only three species can presently be regarded as valid. Lilinsternus arielensis and Procomsignathus triassicus, which we're more familiar with, says the introduction, and that admits that L. arielensis might represent a distinct genus, but more material is needed to confirm this. The authors say that theropods are first known from the fossil record in Europe in the Norian age, and all determinable fossils represent members of Coelophysoidea. And the scarcity of remains suggests, quote, 
Theropods were obviously rather rare elements of the upper Triassic tri terrestrial vertebrate fauna of Europe. Upon reviewing the remains of Procom Signatus, the authors described the species as being described on the basis of, quote, the major part of an extremely delicate dinosaur skeleton, including the skull, the middle part of the body with the legs, and the interior part of the tail. A second partial skull and manis were initially found in the same locality, but considered to belong to a crocodilomorph called Saltoposuchus connectins, though that has been contested. And note, these fragile partial remains are incredibly challenging to positively identify and classify. Even the pros can't be sure what they're looking at sometimes. Further confusing whether the pieces are of the same species, it turns out the fossils weren't excavated by paleontologists, but rather were sold to them after being unearthed by a quarry manager, who reported that they were a dinosaur skeleton in three pieces, along with other vertebrate fossils. Actual literal data on the original association of the fossils does not exist slash has been lost to history. So, are the Saltoposuchus materials also Procomsignathus remains? Well, that remains to be seen, no pun intended, although I made it sound like it was. However, this paper says Procomsignathus features six theropod synapomorphies in the postcranial skeleton, so there's little doubt as to it being a theropod and not a crocodilomorph though its systematic position within Theropoda is less certain. The pubis is reportedly similar to Coelophysis, and especially Segesaurus, but those same features which help it resemble Coelophysis also resemble the features of prosauropods. The authors say it, quote, therefore probably represents the plesiomorphic character state for theropods, which I think means Procomsignathus is a species of dinosaur that existed back when prosauropods, think something like Platyosaurus, and theropods, think something like Coelophysis, shared many more characteristics than they later share. Recall both theropods and sauropods are of the Saurischian family tree and have a common ancestry. So the review also notes, quote, the presence of a sigmoid trochantric shelf identical to that in ceratosaurs, such as Syntarsis and Coelophysis, and that exact shape suggests there may be an indication of a ceratosaurian relationship for this taxon. The state of the remains and lack of other specimens means that the Coelophysid and ceratosaurian relationships are, quote, maybes, and some, something to double-check if and when new materials are discovered. The paper's final observations are that dinosaur remains in European late Triassic deposits aren't uncommon. Lots of dinosaurs are found, but not theropods. They are very rare, though theropods diversified and dispersed very actively in the early Jurassic after a late Triassic extinction event. So theropods were potentially quite rare or uncommon in the late Triassic Europe, until that extinction event after which they became all the rage. Again, no pun intended. In other news, we have a new Carcharodontosaur that was announced back in 2009 that is apparently really easy to overlook. This strange animal was announced uh, all that time ago, and despite my incredibly in-depth survey of everything I could find about dinosaurs, this guy was way off the radar. The paper, a new theropod dinosaur, represented by a single unusual caudal vertebra from the Chemchem beds of Morocco, from June 2009 introduced us to a new giant theropod from the Cenomanian Cretaceous. Now, it's not known from much. It's represented by a single, unusual caudal vertebra from the Chemchem beds of Morocco, and it's only a, quote, nearly complete single vertebra at that. However, that vertebra exhibits an extremely unusual combination of features, say the authors. What's so strange about it? <laughs> well, quote, the specimen differs from other theropod distal caudal vertebrae in the presence of a relatively inflated neural canal, strongly reduced zygapophyses, a low but very robust neural spine bearing shallow lateral fossae, a mediolaterally concave dorsal surface of the neural spine, and coalescence of the 
post-zygapophyses in a position more proximal than the region where neural spines are absent. <sighs> I'm sorry I asked, I guess. This new animal's vertebra shares some derived features with neoceratosaurs, but it's going to be classified as a neotheropod in Certacitus. Note that there are also some Maastrichtian-aged vertebrae of India that are similar and may belong to a related taxon. Chemchemia gets its name from the Chemchem beds of Morocco, where the holotype was collected, and the specific name honors Italian paleoartist Marco Auditore for his inexhaustible and enthusiastic support of vertebrae paleontology. The holotype MSNM V6408 is housed at the Museo di Storia Naturale di Milano, Italy. The authors conclude, quote, while based on a, only a single vertebra, Chemchemia auditoriae shows a unique and unusual combination of features that distinguishes it from all other Cerisian caudal vertebrae. They defend their decision to name this species upon a single vertebra because, quote, naming taxa, even those based on fragmentary remains, can be a useful exercise simply because named taxa are incorporated into large-scale studies of systematics and diversity. Unnamed taxa, even those thought to represent new species, generally are not. And well... Chemchemia auditoriae is clearly distinct from other theropods and worthy of consideration as a valid taxon. So as a neotheropod, what kind of a critter is chemchemia? Well, that's very similar to what we were talking about in the Procomsignathus story earlier. Neotheropods are the survivors of the late Triassic extinction event that derived into the ceratosaurs and tetanurans, which are basically all the rest of the awesome big theropods of the Mesozoic. And if they, and if it were a carcharodontosaurid, this is one of those large shark-toothed big theropods that could span up to 45 feet in length with big bulky torsos, large jaws, a big head-to-body ratio, and three-fingered hands on fairly long arms. So that's a neat animal. All right, with corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, I'd like to introduce to you today my former colleague and cool cat, Melissa Ray. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me to Jurassic Party. <laughs> <laughs> so Melissa and I met after I watched a shocking and horrifying episode of Unsolved Mysteries. In this episode titled Ghost Writer, one of our college newspaper's arts writers who'd enjoyed a modest yet successful stint under the supervision and tutelage of Lance Arts section editor and terrific guest this episode, Melissa, uh, went missing. The writer was Marla Evans, who published in each edition of The Lance dutifully, filing quality articles in a timely fashion, bringing the latest news on the many arts and entertainment features throughout Windsor, Ontario. But on the eve that Melissa left the newspaper, Marla Evans disappeared. For almost 15 years, Marla Evans hasn't reported to the Lance offices for an assignment, published a single article, made any social media posts, nor reportedly been seen by her friends or family. Since the day you left, Melissa, it's time to come clean. What have you done with Marla Evans? You know, I'm not too sure. She was kind of a mystery to start, and, you know, she, she remains a mystery today. Well, less mysterious to us all is the film Jurassic Park. Even though it's a franchise that we began even longer ago, I understand you have done some preparation for today, which is awesome. When you went back to check the film out, did you pick up on anything in the rewatch? Like, it brings up a lot of different discussions because the way that you read it maybe 30 years ago is not the same as you kind of look at it now, which is mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah, that's right. And I, this book in particular really lends itself to being reread. There's more in it every time you go back. It's exciting in that way. <laughs> Do you, um, I just finished it for the first time earlier this week. So, I mean, I will have to pick it up again in the future and kind of give it a second read through once I've you know, digested it and then left it for a while and come back to it. But uh, definitely it was worth, it was worth reading. It's a lot of 
uh, additional layers to the film. But now I, I think that I read them as as kind of one mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way, mm-hmm. where you you kind of meld the two of them to create this other third story. The film does create a very prominent um, image in your mind. Um, well, with all of the media and the marketing that went along with it, like you can't help but see the film's portrayal of, of many of the scenes and characters and things like that. And so, yeah, it's really hard to read the novel without that living in your head at the same time. So it is it is very challenging to, to not see it together. Where, but, you know, there are important differences. There's a real challenge in separating them when you when you try to look at the book a little bit more closely. But um, I think it... when you try to separate them in terms of messaging, mm-hmm. uh it gets a little bit challenging. Um, the way that the book handles things is a little different than the way movies handle the same thing. There's a lot of discussion, for example, around feminism in the movie, uh, not maybe at the time it was released, but looking back on it from from today, that I find that those points weren't really in the book. No. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And in, in the adaptation that went into developing the script out of the novel i think that those are obvious choices and that they were specific choices and um i guess there's questions as to how effective were they but they were obviously a theme where one of spielberg's or their scriptwriters' complaints were that the, the the ellie sally character didn't get to be as good a hero as she should be and uh, they really gave her a better role uh, for the film and it's noticeable and i think they they make a point that it they talk about it too. <laughs> like it's it's intended intended that they say, "Hey, we're we're trying a little bit harder here." Absolutely, and even the character of Lex, how for her mm-hmm. uh, in the the movie version, she's kind of a split between the book version of Timmy. Like they've kind of split that character into two characters. Like there's still the movie Timmy, but then a part of him also becomes the Lex version mm-hmm. uh, in the film. That's right. And I think in the book, Tim is also the computer nerd and the dinosaur nut. And the dinosaur, yeah. So in the book, uh, Lex is very into baseball. Yeah. Um, She carries around that Daryl Strawberry mitt that she, I think, eventually loses in the novel. Um, And I kind of went in, I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this because I was expecting, you know, the kids from the film. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh, it's really refreshing that they've kind of given this this little girl, this really exciting kind of sports angle, because maybe for the time that wasn't something mm-hmm. uh, that you, you often see. But then later in the book, you see her father described as like a sports nut. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think, is she truly into sports or is she into sports because it gives her the, I guess, the favor of the father? Because mm-hmm. there's a discussion between her and Tim about, well, he likes you too, meaning like he he favors the, the sports over the the computers and the dinosaurs. Yeah, that's right. And I think you're you're right. We both get um, a perspective of the children through the lens of how they've been affected by their uh, father's parenting. And so Lex is, because she's has a closer proclivity to, to sports and things like that, whether that's to just be closer with her dad or because she, maybe there's a combination of her, she really does like it and, and she likes the attention that she gets from her dad from it, that she really gets all the favor and so the two of them because they are in alignment and because the father figure is kind of in charge of the family unit they get to do more of what lex likes and we are just you know are introduced to tim uh, conversely he doesn't get to do what he likes because he doesn't like the same things his dad does and he feels terrible about it and he doesn't feel like his dad cares for him as much and uh and i think on the island 
he thinks he's on this adventure. He's escaped and he's in his environment. He's in his favorite place with dinosaurs. And I think he's in a new world where he's like, ah, to here, here I can be the hero. Here I'm the good guy. But there's this looming voice of his father still being spoken to him through Lex. And I think that there's there's something to be said about that, that it, this shadow still kind of falls over him from, from her voice with the baseball and with the baseball glove and things like that. I think during the Tyrannosaurus attack afterwards, he brings the ball back to Lex to try and coax her out of the... He's like, hiding in the tunnel or the tube, and, and he tries to coax her out with the ball. Yeah. Um, and she asks, I think, is mom out there or is dad out there, knowing yeah. that no. they're not. Yeah. And uh, that's really interesting that he... There must be more to unpack there about that, that perspective. That he coming to terms or trying to make peace with, uh, with that father figure that uh, he hasn't related with. And then Lex is just such a brat all the time, but there must be, there's so much symbology or symbolism anyhow in that baseball. When she loses her baseball glove to the, to the pterosaurs that attack her in the aviary. In the aviary, yeah. And I wonder if there's, there's more about letting, letting that uh, father figure go to be read into that or not. Because of all the things that do, you know, contain symbols, I think the glove and the ball, that baseball, the baseball hats, for some reason, baseball really represents absolutely but like when you look at what those kids go through in the book mm-hmm. to be able to hold on to that object throughout the whole adventure like that's a commitment yeah. like most kids out of here would have maybe dropped it or have left it or it was the first thing to be thrown as like a defense uh but no she she keeps it and you're right i think we laughed earlier that um timmy has these night vision goggles he finds them in the car then after the car falls out of the tree, he picks them up again and he's using them. And then, you know, we find out way later on in the kitchen <laughs> that he still has these things. And they've run through a stampede and they've gone down the raft and they like he's hung on to this. thing, <laughs> And it sounds like they're uh, a chunky, formidable piece of equipment to just be lugging around, especially now that it's no longer nighttime <laughs> the next morning. So absolutely. But if you envision them like they are in the film, it's like a proper helmet. Yeah, like he's got a full scale uh, full-scale helmet head going on. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they'd certainly have stuck to it. And I don't know if she hangs onto the ball for much longer after that. I don't remember. I don't remember references to the ball later in the book, but definitely the uh, the glove and the cap are with her. So that's interesting. After they leave the pterosaur aviary, that she may no longer have any of these symbols of her, of her parentage. We don't get much mention of her mom, uh, just that she has a new boyfriend. We don't really know much about the dad, although I think that he might be one of the architects uh, that helped design the park. I think when you look, uh, if you go back to the first mention of like who the engineers are that are building the park and things like that, there's a Murphy and Associates or something like that. And that Mm -hmm. could be Tim and Lex Murphy's father. Would it be crazy for Hammond to hire his wife's husband to, to help design the park? A little nepotism in there? I don't know. Maybe they met through Hammond earlier. We don't know the backstory. Oh, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? I mean, you figure he's been at work for this for a while, and the kids are, are maybe, what, 11 and 7, are they? That's about right. That's very interesting. Why not? We'll have to look into that. <laughs> what an interesting perspective. How do they all meet? We There's so much mystery left in this novel with uh, with the backstories that they're very underdeveloped. I found that there's a, you really get to know the people that helped build Jurassic Park, but you don't really get to know the consultants very well that you hear about Ed Regis and his work and Arnold and his backstory and 
and uh, Muldoon gets a bunch of like working in African parks and things like that. But you don't really get much on what Grant was like. You kind of get a story of like who he is, but not where he comes from. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you know, creative writing one on one is you're supposed to <laughs> develop the first ten years of your character's life, and then you come up with an inciting incident. We only was married before because there is an exchange with Timmy where Timmy asks him if he's with Ellie in the mm -hmm. book. Yeah. And he says no, that she's the, the grad student, but she thinks she's engaged to another doctor in, is it Chicago? Yeah, it was a um, doctor or a, a lawyer or something like that, yeah. There is, yeah, doctor. he's a professional. And then Timmy asks if, if he was married, and I think he says he, he was, uh, but doesn't have any children. Mm -hmm. yeah, he said his wife had died many years ago. Oh, did. I see a widower. Yeah. Oh, no. So he just has his dinosaurs, that's his life. <laughs> And his students, I guess. I, I Yeah, when I was... Uh, so at the end, there's a scene where Grant grabs Gennaro by the collar of his shirt, pushes him up against the wall, says, you've been shirking your responsibilities this whole time. We need to go down into a nest and look at uh, raptor eggs. And if we don't do this, I'm gonna you're going to be cattle prodded and stuff like that. And they're pretty pretty firm on Gennaro. And, I, and uh, I, it, it feels really, really contrived. But I think that there's this mentioned earlier when we we're talking about how the women are portrayed that Gennaro rides in the Jeep back to the visitor center with Sattler and Harding because of her shorts, that she had good legs. And this is why the lawyer decided he would ride in the Jeep back with them. That is mentioned so many times in the book. Yeah. The shorts, <laughs> the blonde hair. Uh, oh, it's, it's such a, a prominent visual. Yeah. Uh, her neck and her body and her the way her shirt's tied off, always mentioned. How everybody else is dressed, you don't know. <laughs> but you know how she's dressed. So certainly Crichton had a, when he's envisioning what I have to write here, that, that came out first and it lasted in the script and everybody else kind of got overlooked. So there's a certainly something to be said about that extra attention that he invested in that. But I wonder... And in Malcolm, there's such attention to detail in the color choices he makes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which are... are seen in the film like in uh, Jeff Goldblum's character um, and I think that was it's it's a really interesting comparison because you have Hammond in the film who's dressed completely in white white yes uh, not in the lost world he's wearing you see him in the uh, the bathrobe when he he's at the house um, but his color palette for the first film is is you know white on white on mm-hmm starkly at <laughs> odds for sure he's got a white hat too and a white beard and <laughs> And then Malcolm comes in all in black. That's an interesting choice. I don't know that he was specifically mentioned to be all in white in the novel, but obviously Spielberg is uh, a master at film. And when he goes to build his characters and his costumes and his design, he sees here we have two opposing views. And uh, <laughs> you're right, dress one in black, dress one in white, and make them spy versus spy. That's funny. Good observation. That's a good one. Uh, that wasn't an original observation. It's oh, no? In, in years of, of reading, yeah, or, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen elsewhere. But the movie has such fun cues. The other one that is noticeable from the book to the film that I noticed is the opening uh, sequence when they land on the island. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the novel version, you know, helicopter lands, no problem, but you have this really funny... Well, it's played kind of for laughs, but it's also a really good use of, of foreshadowing where uh, Grant has the two buckles mm -hmm. and he ties them together. Um, but the buckles are the female ends of the yes. seatbelt. And he can't get them to obviously to properly clip, so he ties them, which is uh, kind of a life finds a way reference. Yes. So it shows his ingenuity that he, he can solve a problem when he's got things that, you know, without the right tools and then at the same time, 
yeah, the uh, the whole idea that uh, these animals might <laughs> breed even though there's no males around, that you can still find it. Life will find a way. And you're right, that symbolism is certainly there. Spielberg is so clever. <laughs> but, I mean, the fandom goes into detail about discussing these things because, I mean, obviously, like, you start to read forums and you start to read, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all of these things are, are pointed out. I wish I had been the first person to think of all of them. But, but just the people are really passionate about talking about, you know, the compare and contrast and, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of universe. Well, certainly, and we were laughing about it in one episode where, you know, you make the movie, you expect lots of people to see it. But at the level to which um, today, you know, even a trailer is broken down shot for shot. Um, and every scene, every cell gets, you know, poured over, uh, especially with, uh, with, a, with an intellectual property that has some fandom to it. That, you know, there's a, there are entire YouTube channels that are dedicated, and lots of them, to, to breaking everything down to get out there first with... Uh, this insight and so i mean that that spielberg's work holds up without knowing that this would ever be a thing <laughs> is astonishing because there's so much packed into it and you know he was he was on a budget he was on a time schedule and uh he had to, he had to rush off and make schindler's list or something like that right away uh, that they were able to get as much into that film that holds up without too much you know people seem to pick away like oh you can tell that the fence is something or there's a glitch here it's like yeah he's working with puppets and that's cgi but um, most of it's so well done and it's, uh, it's astonishing they got it all there without, without really thinking that it was going to have to stand the, this test of time that so many people are going to be looking at it so closely. But it does. And I mean, even things like the score, mm -hmm. like I saw Jurassic Park live to screen, uh, here in Dubai at the opera a couple of years ago. And just that experience, like it was, I'm going to say it was sold out, but it was beautiful just to hear it all mm -hmm. live to screen. And, you know, uh, John Williams' soundtrack is such a strong piece of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, even when you read the book, like, I hear the overture as they're kind of coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you listen to the soundtrack, you can um, you can <laughs> speak the words <laughs> over the over the text and uh, over the track. I know that I can uh, do the Welcome to Jurassic Park scene for sure. And, it, yeah, you still get all the feelings. It's a, It was great that you would have such a euphoric or even evangelic chorus and still have that visual that makes you feel the same thing that there's a perfect harmony there that that mm -hmm. makes it work uh i was just watching something the other day that um the composer john williams had said that looking up at the brachiosaurus the opening scene there was going to be he said that that should feel like when one looks up at like the sistine chapel or looks up at a beautiful uh, cathedral and looking up into the rafters and so he decided that he would put like a, a chorus of people sounding like a choir uh, to try and i guess in, infuse that concept into the track so that's a lot of foresight that went into it it was really good it's beautiful it's a great scene though because it's like at the time the technological advancements of that movie like you are just as in awe seeing this dinosaur on screen as they would be seeing this dinosaur in reality because like i'd never seen as a child like you don't see like that was in its time like wow like look at what we've accomplished and mm -hmm. you know even looking at films that were made after jurassic park they don't have that same kind of magic that that movie has mm -hmm. why do you think that is can you think of what choices that were, were made differently? I think that the palette, the color palettes work um, 
really strongly to to the film um the distance between the characters and the dinosaurs is another mm-hmm. um there's that really distinct turn where you know things start to go awry right when it starts to storm um so the fact that it's it's raining and it's muddy like all of these things work to each kind of i guess uh conceal what needs to be concealed if it's working with a puppet or if it's working with cgi um or if you say watch the lost world where they're holding a lot of the dinosaurs or they're trying to transport them and it's a little bit more brightly lit it it's not that it doesn't look believable but it it doesn't have the same feel to it Mm -hmm. i think that there's a perspective I, i know that in um spielberg shot a lot of things from the ground up you're never kind of at the dinosaur's point of view uh, you're always it was always kind of looming down on you and so there was a, a perspective of always being kind of in the scene with the characters as opposed to there being like an establishing shot where you just see them like running across the horizon which you can i don't know if you've seen land of the lost where they're just <laughs> sprinting along the horizon with a dinosaur chasing them because um, <laughs> that takes you out of the moment and lets you laugh at it whereas there was no opportunity for that and so you always felt like you were right there and then when the dinosaurs do get close I know the book was very good about whenever a dinosaur is near, uh, Crichton makes a point to describe its uh, pebbly skin or something like that. So like, oh, I'm so close that these finer details are visible now. And that's to relate to us that um, the proximity has shrunk and that we are in greater danger. Certainly that closeness is done well and portrayed really well in the film as well when they, you know, Ellie's turning on the power and it jumps out from between the pipes and things like that. When things get close, seeing the big foot and all the details in the foot and how that spreads the mud and uh, the idea that the weight and the size and the presence of these animals is uh, is consequential is captured really, really well and adapted well from, from what Crichton had put in the text. Absolutely. Was there uh, other surprises? I know there's a lot of things that are different. Hammond's character is very different. Ed Regis was a character that didn't make it into the film. Nedry's demise was uh, a little bit more graphic in the novel than uh, in the film. Were there, were there they big definitely su- in the film, yeah. They definitely uh, didn't go for a lot of the kills that they went for in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it may be because it leaves it more opportunity to bring these characters back for subsequent films mm-hmm. um, as opposed to kind of killing them all off. Hammond's death in the book I, I really thought was more effective than him getting on the plane at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more villainous in the book, or a lot more villainous in the book than he <laughs> seems to be uh, in, in the film. But uh, I liked that the thing that kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back was the fact that he falls when he hears the recorded T-Rex voice, the mm-hmm. roar, which is so interesting because he talks through the whole book about people being able to be telling what's real from what's not yes. real and how important this is. But he falls like literally and figuratively at the sound of the recording as opposed to the real Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. And there's there has to be something that can be read more into that. You just did it. You nailed that. That's right. <laughs> so Hammond falling down the hill, that's a great one because I think it's easy to get caught up in just reading into the the poetic justice that I ah, this guy deserves to die and now he's gonna die. But that there's so much more mythology and and um metaphor that goes around with that i think that's perfect and and um characters like nedry and hammond Crichton spends so much time building up the villains the perpetrators of the park and everybody else is just kind of watching it you know what i mean but uh yeah there's that's a great point that that uh he falls for it that's so good 
There was a. Mandrake has such a more graphic death, though. I mean, yeah. just the, the venom and the eyes and the burning. Like, he feels that. Like, there's a, a scene where he's trying to, you know, feel what's happening and he can feel his intestines outside of his body, mm-hmm. but he can't see because obviously the poison's gotten to to his eyes, but the compies have that euphoric bite. So, you know, Hammond, uh, he kind of just goes. <laughs> or you have the, you know what I mean? Like it, it's... And the difference between like what happens to him in a tragedy is that in a tragedy, you realize the error of your ways but it's now too late and you still fall victim to whatever machinations have been put in place. So the tragedy is you die a horrible death with great regret and sorrow. <laughs> but he doesn't get that. He just dies because he, at the end, was still saying, I, I'm going to build a bigger park. I'm going to build two or three more parks. I'm going to get better people. Everybody I know sucks. Uh, and he, he goes out. I made all the wrong choices. This person was wrong. That yeah. person was wrong. I'll start over. I have more islands. And like... the goofy part was that those people were right. Had he listened to them, he wouldn't have. He would have had a safer park that was under more control. It might not have been realized as quickly, but like he he might have had a finished product that was worth something afterwards. Whereas I imagine that everything is a total financial loss after the lawsuits and things like that. Once it's done, that eight hundred and something million dollars that was fundraised will never be paid back by anybody. <laughs> no. I wonder how much was Hammond's money? I don't think that was ever really mentioned. Probably none. That schemer. <laughs> um, um. The other part, too, with uh, with Hammond was that as he's getting bit, it says that he like falls asleep like a baby in its crib by those compies, which, again, thematically ties back to the beginning when there are compies that have escaped the park and they're biting babies in their cribs. And that's just another little piece that so much of this story is bookended by things surrounding Hammond, rightfully so, but like thematically and subtly, it's so well done that that uh, I bet you there's even more stuff in there that we haven't noticed yet that is just waiting to happen. It's so layered. I mean, the way that like this book was methodically written in terms of like its language choice and its subsequent graphs and data like all of that can be gleaned for things that aren't expressly said Mm -hmm. so like it it has this wonderful like mystery quality that i didn't realize the book had because Mm -hmm. you can pick little things apart and they're not like hey look at this but if you kind of go into it it's like hey look at this like yeah i've got all this extra layering that you know it wasn't in paragraph form like (laughs) put out but it's there and you're absolutely right. The the movies kind of lack that, and and I think they're for the the worst for it. That there is a mystery that goes along with the story. Where did this come from? These are the big questions. Answering those questions it w- is what drives our scientists forward. They're pursuing knowledge. They want to figure out how this happens, especially these things that seem impossible. And so they go forward saying, "Can there be dinosaurs? Uh, how would you get dinosaurs? Uh, how do you get away from dinosaurs?" <laughs> um, Whereas the novel's kind of, or sorry, the film, the film misses that concept that there's this intriguing mystery beyond it. It'd be, it's rather just kind of an adventure where they, they show up somewhere, chaos theory dictates that things have to go problematically, and then it does. And that's okay, but um, it's nice to see, I, you know, the sequels could have perhaps put in some mystery and this, you know, idea of like, how could there possibly be dinosaurs? And I think that's, for what it's worth, what was adapted into the, the first film was, how did you make this happen? 
And that was important. I think that's what made this the phenomenon that it became in that it felt real and that the, the setup was viable enough that the payoff was worth it. <laughs> and, uh, and so that bit of mystery that they did take out of the, the Crichton text really was important for the overall success of the geez, the zeitgeist that emerged from it. I mean, it's so bizarre how, how big it was all over the world, really was. This is one of those, I mean, the film was, was, was massive, but the books, I mean, a few of those books, like, this is just my personal opinion, where it feels like everyone's talking about them. Mm-hmm. Like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code was one of those books where it felt like for a time, everyone was talking about this. I remember it felt like, you know, for the, the Michael Crichton book back in the early 90s, like this was also one of those books where it felt like everyone was talking about it. And like, is this possible? What would you do in this situation? Like, it was a conversation piece. I don't know for, you know, everyone, but in, you know, my parents, their friends, you know, even as kids, like, you, did you see the movie? Uh, where can you kind of get a copy of this book? The answer was almost everywhere. Like, this mm-hmm. book was everywhere. That's a good point. And the Da Vinci Code relies on that mystery concept as well, this, this pursuit of discovery. And they give you an answer at the end, but you spent so much time thinking along with it. And uh, I wonder if that's a big part of it, that that's helped. So what makes a good joke, what makes a good mystery, a good riddle, is that you're invested in finding the answer. And when you find something funny, you kind of have to, without having it explained to you, you meet it halfway. So you are creating meaning with the what they're telling you, right? You have to meet them halfway. They can't just give it to you or else it's not funny at all. You don't get the reward for just, you know, answering it. And it's the same with mysteries, that you need to f- kind of solve it. You don't just have to have it given to you. And so there's just little bits that give you that uh, that that perk of adrenaline that says, oh, I think I got it. I think I got it. And I think that's maybe why Lost kind of worked as well as a phenomenon as a show, that there is a mystery and it keeps people engaged. Like, maybe I know what's going on. And they give you little clues. And, and those are three examples that really had huge cult followings that got people really into it. It's not just the adventure. It's the mystery. I think that's a big part of its oh, success. Absolutely. I, the book kind of was this little treasure map, and it was like, this isn't possible, but is it? And then you kind of pick away, and then, you know, you go over here, and you're looking at what's happening. And, you mm-hmm. know, on the page, it, it looks like it makes sense. Like, the you know what I mean? Like, the yeah. science writing is not bang on. But it, it's grounded in, in something that seems like it could be. Like that's the propelling, mm-hmm. I guess, interest in, in the book. Yeah, no, the the success of it had to be in that it felt for real and it was a cool mystery. And they maybe it was like <sighs> Crichton had revealed a, sec- like a secret to the world. Like, oh, we could do this. And I think people still today believe that one of these days we'll clone something from the from the deep past. I don't know that it's been done yet, but... They're still talking about mammoths, and they're talking about, I think I heard about cloning an old rat or a rodent of some sort. What did you think of the characters in the movie versus the book? Because I was going through a lot of the old reviews of the film, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them really touched on that the characters seemed to be a bit, uh, we'll say, loose. Mm -hmm. They, They make reference to, you know... You know, the movie is really solid in terms of suspense and excitement and, and technical and the dinosaurs really stand out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the characters didn't really uh, jump from the page to, to the screen in the way that they had expected. Mm-hmm. Kind of being yeah. unpopular opinion, I felt that the characters in the, in the film were quite rounded. Like a lot of them had 
arcs yeah. uh, that maybe didn't have in the book. So I was surprised to see that in a lot of the old reviews, but uh, just throwing it in there. No, I think Sattler is shallowly written or conceived in the novel. Uh, she has useful skills that come to come to light. She, her expertise gets a chance to carry some water at times. Like she makes keen observations that are true uh, in terms of like, hey, the, the facilities have been uh, adapted for more militarized style versus what we've seen in the architecture. That's a astute observation. That's a clue to say something is awry here. Um, she notices that they've put poisonous plants around the pool side and they say, this is, this is dangerous. That's a good observation. Hey, this is something that we'll go into a report, I guess, later when she decides on whether or not this is a safe uh, resort. She's able to translate the, the garbled messages over the, the radio when the storm is causing interference. So that's a useful skill. She puts herself on the line to, to protect, uh, to save Grant, basically try to lure the raptors away from uh, the fences so that Grant can get to the visitor center or the control room to turn the power back on. Um, so that's really good. And I think th those are good, but they aren't well-rounded. Like a lot of it is kind of internal monologue. Whereas in the novel, or sorry, the film, she, she gets to have a lot more agency and a bigger voice. And, uh, and I think that's well done. And she brings some poise and some dependability, I think, too. Like, I think she feeds the everybody, gives them some hope <laughs> in some respect. Like, everybody's really, really frantic, and, and she's kind of guiding the way in a lot of ways. And when she has to, she takes control. I think she does a good job keeping her cool and, you know, escaping for velociraptors, I think. Gennaro doesn't get carried well in the film. He's pretty one-dimensional. Hammond is, I would say, more one-dimensional in the novel. And it's just because he's pure psychopath. <laughs> what do I think about Grant? I think the big difference between Grant in the novel and the, in the film was that Grant in the novel is blue-collar versus, you know, he's, he's a guy that's like, likes getting his hands dirty, wants to work hard. To him, that is important. Whereas I think in the film, he's to be regarded as not blue-collar, but old-school. Like, my way is better than the new way. That technology is bad. That uh, if we rely on technology too much, we are going to lose control. Which isn't hardworking. That's old school. My ways, the my generation's ways are better. So I think that's kind of a difference between them. I love that he has to, in the novel, face his fear. Technology and he do not mix. He doesn't understand computers at all. And it's... Um, part of his duty to get the computers back on and so he although he doesn't wind up doing it he would try <laughs> if, if he had to and so i like that the, the bravery isn't just in in facing dinosaurs because he doesn't well he mean yeah <laughs> but it's also in facing like his his weaknesses as well because facing dinosaurs maybe is a strength how about you what about the you mentioned a bit about the kids what'd you think of those how are they versus the film in the in the book I think that Tim was consistent through both. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found that Lex was described as obnoxious by Tim mm -hmm. in the book, and I, I felt that that was a lot of times she did a lot of... I mean, they're kids, so they, they kind of squabble. Uh, they have, like, little... But because they made... I feel like the kids were a little bit older in the film, so they were able to have more of a dialogue as opposed to just kind of back and forth off each other. Uh, she got to be the hacker 
she, you know, that was for a girl that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Like as I was like a little girl, I was like, oh, she's like a vegetarian and she's a hacker. Like she's a cool kid. I agree with uh, with Grant. We had characters in the book that uh, that didn't show up in in the film movie. I liked Arnold a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was in the movie enough. Like, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson did a great job. Like, yeah. that iconic cigarette that he's always got. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah no, I, I, I don't agree that they were as flat as maybe they were perceived to be by a lot of the reviewers. But mm. uh, I definitely now kind of look at it as, as a layering. Like, I'll take bits of the book and bits of the movie when I kind of look at the, the characters as, you know, Jurassic Park the whole. Mm-hmm. Then I think the two slam dunks that are like represented about as well as possible are Malcolm and Nedry. Wayne Knight and Jeff Goldblum portray what the novel laid out for Nedry and Malcolm, you know, about as well as could be. I think they were adapted nicely. I think that they performed well. And uh, I think that they were able to bring a backstory to their characters that the, that the novel provided them best onto screen whereas i don't know that because hammond was changed so much his backstory doesn't really matter the kids were changed enough that their backstory doesn't that that parenthood that looming father figure doesn't reveal itself and grant's backstory doesn't exist but i think nedry and his his ambition and uh his scheming is portrayed well and his weakness at deceptiveness <laughs> is portrayed well by wayne knight and malcolm is um confident and wry and comedic and we get that in the novel we get that in in the film i think those two characters were adapted probably the best or most we won't say best most authentically from the novel how's that absolutely in agreement i think that in the film they could have probably made a stronger case for the fact that nedry was so underpaid and overworked mm -hmm. um, i didn't really maybe it's been a little while since i've seen it but uh I definitely felt that came across a stronger in the book than mm -hmm. it did in the film. Um, it feels like he was a mercenary in the film where they, they offered him more money to do something. So he says, okay, I'll just take that money as opposed to what I was paid over here or because I wasn't paid enough. Whereas I think mm -hmm. in the novel, it's the case can be made. It isn't said explicitly, but like he's forced to eat his overages, which implies that there are, you know, more costs on top of producing uh, or delivering the contract and my hunch would be that he wouldn't see a profit so he and it was coming at the risk of them blackmailing him or, or saying that it, to his other clients that he wasn't going, he was unreliable and therefore his prospects for the future were also harmed by working with these guys so his motivations are certainly better understood in the novel I think kinda... that the line, we spare no expense in the film, is mm -hmm. so widely used by Hammond, which isn't the case in the book, but I just assumed that when it came to Nedry, it was implied. Mm -hmm. Like, this person was also being well compensated for what they were doing, when we know now, all through the novel, that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. There's... Spare no expense kind of applied to other things, but not the human aspect or all human aspects. There's a fascinating discussion to be had or maybe an essay to write, or I'm not sure, about how that was adapted because it was a linchpin in the film. I think Hammond mm -hmm. says it seven times in the movie. It is. he. It's repeated quite a bunch, but in, in the book, mm -hmm. if it's, I don't believe it's Hammond that says it. It's not even his line. Says. It's Ed Regis, and Ed Regis is the guy that basically says, it, it. you can look at almost everything he says is either a lie or it's totally just flat wrong. 
he's either incorrect, he's being deceptive, or he's mistaken, but nothing he really says turns out to be true or work out the way he believes it will. And when he says we spared no expense, uh, he's trying to glamorize, I guess in a way, as a publicist might, that they're, the production of... It's Richard Kiley's voice that they they hire to be on the on the tour CD, and uh, apparently he would have been a an actor that would receive higher than just scale, I guess. <laughs> and so he was a valuable uh, voice to have uh, performing at the park. It was Ed Regis saying, "We spared no expense," whereas we know that uh, there's a variety of things that they skipped out <laughs> on the price for, including consequentially their their um, programmer. It's also strange that I find that when they kind of um, entice Grant and Ellie to come to the park, mm -hmm. uh, Hammond sends this letter, but then he says, excuse me, like, I don't have proper marketing materials. Yeah. And I always kind of thought that was a bit bizarre for somebody that's really trying to, like, gung-ho sell this park. Like, your first thing that you give somebody out the gate, you're apologizing because the marketing's not up to snuff. Like, I just felt like that would have been... Because it's all it's it's a big show, right? And the marketing to kind of get them to come should mm -hmm. have been part of that larger presentation. And mm -hmm. I don't know. And I'm it, like, this guy would have not let that marketing get out there unless it was. That's right, and I think absolutely on the message. That's consistent with what uh, Ed Regis tells us that he isn't able to do the marketing stuff yet because it's supposed to be a secret, and so he's not able to reveal to the people he's working with. I want to say. It was in New York, and there's a few other cities. But he was working with marketing firms in other countries to to work on this. But he wasn't getting good results because he couldn't he couldn't mention dinosaurs, and that would be the thing that you market. <laughs> of and, and so he had been working for all this time. I believe it's said that he was. I did the timeline. He would have been new to the park in January. The story is set in august so he's been there for that amount of time and he hasn't been able to do his job and instead he's doing stuff like helicoptering uh lacerated uh dying uh construction workers to clinics <laughs> he's like the the what do they call the guy in in pulp fiction the fixer no not the fixer the wolf i'm sending you guys the wolf well they send in harvey keitel and harvey keitel's the fixer he makes sure that nobody finds out what's going on he's the cleaner or something like that and I feel like Regis is working like that. He's trying to keep, you know, the message quiet. He's just trying to keep the story in a box, so that no. And that's what he's doing at this time, as opposed to doing any. He's doing the opposite of publicity, which is interesting, and everything but. Which is a clever, clever choice by Crichton to have a publicist working all that time, and he's doing the opposite of publicity. <laughs> Henry Wu. Did you did you feel that he had a lot of agency or strength as a character, or do you feel like he was just kind of towing the line? I feel like he's a quieter character because there is a time where he tries to kind of rationalize with Hammond, and mm -hmm. Hammond kind of tries to re-steer the ship on the vision of the park. Uh, but they also have kind of competing ideas where the language is like, Hammond is like the god character, like the creator, whereas Wu doesn't see himself as like the creator. He's just putting together pieces that have already existed. Mm -hmm. So I think he, he knows better, but he doesn't have the power to make the decisions he wants to, I suppose. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot on the line for him. Like Hammond pulled him right out of school. Like he's given him kind of this career that he's dreamt of, but like there's a cost associated with mm -hmm. that and it's kind of quiet. I'm impressed that you were able to, from the time I mentioned it to you, 
acquire a copy and read a copy of the book. That's pretty impressive. I tried. I mean, I, I wanted to have as much kind of insight into the book as I could going yeah. in. Um, I definitely need to to reread it, maybe a closer reading in the future. But uh, I enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. I don't think you can do a closer reading on the first pass. <laughs> I think it has to be a reread. And I hope you only do it for fun if you want to. <laughs> like, I don't tend to reread novels uh, often. Um, I'll read them. Uh, with the exception, I, I've reread the Harry Potter series this this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not a book that I often find myself coming back to over and, and over again. I mean, as, as a child, yes, but as an adult, I... I kind of treasure the time I have to read it once and then mm-hmm. go a little while without reading anything. And then I pick up another book and, you know, adulting. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely uh, wish I had more time to, to read. Well, I appreciate entirely that knowing that you probably don't have a lot of time to read, that you did read this for us. That's an awesome. Oh, thanks for having no, me awesome. on. Thank you for being available. This is incredible. So what time is it there? Uh, currently, it is about six thirty. I've watched the sun go down in your window. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's nighttime. Yeah, it's it's proper uh, proper evening now. Oh wow! Well, the sun's just getting started over here. Well, um, thanks so much for coming on and sharing so much. It was really good. I really appreciate. It. Good to see you again. Yeah, it was lovely seeing you, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again to my special guest, Melissa Ray, for joining me on the show. It was great catching up. Thank you so much for joining in after all this time. The text this week is Bungalow, spanning from pages 198 to 204. Synopsis. Wu wants to figure out if Grant's amphibian DNA hypothesis holds the answer to their breeding dinosaur problem, but he's sidetracked by Hammond's insistence to eat dinner first. They realize that the monitor is out in the dining room of Hammond's bungalow and the phones are out. Meanwhile, John Arnold is losing his patience in the search for Nedry, and Dr. Harding and Sattler are waylaid by a herd of apatosaurs standing in the street, and they decide to follow a little pack of procomsignathuses that are on their way to do something interesting, and they're looking to find out what. Characters, John Hammond. Hammond is being a polite host to start this chapter on 198, offering more coffee to uh, Henry Wu. Hammond has changed in a subtle but still noticeable way. We learned that Hammond is 76 years old, almost 77, and he has a tendency to ramble, repeat himself, retell old stories, and has mood swings, flaring anger one moment and maudlin sentimentality the next. Wu also says Hammond has a stubborn evasiveness and insistence on having his own way, which we've, we've seen throughout the rest of this novel so far. Recall, this fits with the God Complex, where what Hammond decrees is so. His word is command, and also... Quote, complete refusal to deal with the situation that now faced the park on 198, which is further troubling. Hammond admits he believed Nedry was a genius in his own way, but that he had to be pressed, quote, quite hard toward the end to make sure he got things right on 199. Wu offers to go see why the monitor and phone lines are malfunctioning, but Hammond stops him saying, if there were a problem, we'd hear about it. Like how, John? You want someone to put it on the monitor or maybe phone you? Jeez, this guy, right? When Wu mentions the scary thunder and hopes that Hammond's grandkids are okay, recall they are not, Hammond disregards his concern and instead starts talking about his worries for himself, that he is growing old and may not live long enough to see his great vision come to life. There are no problems more pressing on his mind than not living to see the children reveling in his greatness, basking in his accomplishments. See, he's a psycho. Well, hang on. Maybe he's maybe he's not. Maybe we're just reading this wrong. Next page. If you're going to start a bioengineering company, Henry, 
What would you do? Would you make products that help mankind to fight illness and disease? Dear me, no. That's a terrible idea. Very poor use of a new technology. Personally, I would never help mankind on page 200. So no, we read that right the first time. He's a psycho. In his lecture to Wu on pricing products and free will, Hammond says that there are either governments or societal conventions which hinder one from freely charging absolutely whatever they want for a product. Damn those oppressive societal conventions. Something will force you to see reason and to sell your drug at a lower cost. He says on 200. But Hammond says that nobody needs entertainment, and so according to his logic, nothing will force you to see reason, and you can sell your entertainment at a higher cost. When Maria comes to take the ice cream from Wu and Hammond, Hammond is briefly distracted by her, and apparently he's come to learn of her ancestry. It suggests he's built a personal relationship with her, and suggesting he has private staff for his bungalow here on the island. She'd be lonely, as we're told Hammond rarely comes to the island anymore. Hammond shares his plans to expand his into new parks with Jurassic Park Europe and in the Azores and Jurassic Park Japan near Guam. All these plans are scheduled to land Hammond an expected $10 billion per year revenue at the gate, another $10 billion more in merchandising, television, and ancillary rights. Hammond gets petulant when it's suggested that scientists might want to constrain his work in cloning dinosaurs, but he has no time for scientists and their research. It's interesting to do research, but they never accomplish anything by it, we're told on page 202. By the but the dinosaurs are too expensive for research purposes. He then clearly declares himself above the law on Isla Nublar, where no nation's laws nor their scientists can shut him down. He is independent, and the amount of money he's going to make with it makes him chuckle. Dr. Henry Wu. Wu has eaten his fill in the dining room, waiting for everyone to return from the park while eat waiting with Hammond. And Wu notices that Hammond has changed in a troubling way, though just subtly. The evidence presented for a breeding population of dinosaurs on the island, quote, stunned Wu. We're told, but he didn't yet allow himself to believe the case was proved, he admits. So immediately after saying that Hammond is too stubborn and ignorant for taking responsibility, he's saying, well, I'm not that stubborn and ignorant, but... I don't believe the dinosaurs are breeding yet. This open-ended maybe someday I can be convinced to see him open-minded stance, I guess, lends him a chance to still be stubborn, but show that he's being fair, too. He doesn't want to appear unjust, I suppose. And again, the moral rectitude displayed earlier when he was offended that someone might think he would contribute to an unsafe park is still at the forefront of Crichton's character design for Henry Wu. Wu had full intentions to investigate the amphibian DNA theory of Dr. Grant. He's curious and wants to get to the root of the matter, but Hammond insisted Wu accompany him at dinner on page 199. When Wu spots that the monitor is out and the phone lines aren't functioning, he offers to go to the control room right away to solve the problem, but Hammond stops him from doing that, too. Quote, dutifully, Wu dipped his spoon to try the ice cream. And the dutifully here shows that Wu obeys, always obeys, and always has. He's not the leader of the cloning program. He's just another employee at Hammond's disposal. A sudden crack of lightning makes Wu think, geez, the grandkids might have been frightened by that. That was really close. And when Hammond starts to open up to Wu about his fears, Wu feels enthused. This was the breakthrough he'd been desperately hoping would come. Finally, they can start building Jurassic Park in a fashion more fitting of Wu's vision. But he's incredibly disappointed when Hammond instead is lamenting about how he's not going to reap the amount of joy from this park that he feels he's owed. And perhaps he's, it's unsaid, he's too old to enjoy the terrific fortune that's sure to follow. Wu implores him to consider that there are other problems to consider too. Hammond summarizes, Wu was hired to use the emerging technology of genetic engineering to make money. A lot of money. 
on page 200. And Wu knows that Hammond is about to launch into one of his old speeches, showing how familiar he is at this point with the old man. Hammond goes on about not developing important, helpful products, because the more necessary, the more pressured to exercise goodwill in distributing it. Whereas if it's an unnecessary entertainment product, you're under no pressure to exercise goodwill. You can just get rich. And Wu agrees with him. But he's still trying to get his two cents in edgewise, yet Hammond isn't listening. The concept of making $20 billion per year is staggering to Wu on page 201, and Wu counters against Hammond's arguments that just as Genentech would be pressured to offer its cancer treatments at a price not of their choosing, that Jurassic Park 2 will find itself under similar pressures. For example, scientists may want to constrain Hammond, suggests Wu. All right, Maria. Maria makes the most wonderful ginger ice cream that's sourced from the eastern part of the island on page 199. She's a beautiful, silent serving girl who draws the looks of Wu as she leaves the dining room. She's, quote, not from here, you know, says Hammond, implying that Maria is quite foreign. She's Haitian, that her mother is French. Haiti and Costa Rica are about 1,600 kilometers apart, but they're both in the Caribbean Sea, and apparently a seven, it's only a seven-hour flight between the two. And that's to the east, meaning Isla Nublar is another 100 miles west from the mainland. So I guess she's foreign. <laughs> Uh, Dennis Nedry. Hammond gives Nedry a little bit of credit, though Nedry has just been gruesomely preyed upon in the previous chapter. Here Hammond recalls that Nedry was a genius, quote, in his way, but admits, quote, we had to press him quite hard toward the end to make sure he got things right. Arnold is insisting that the security guards around the visitor center find Dennis Nedry. Uh, Dr. Lewis Dodson. Hammond suggests that he knows of Dodson's belief that Jurassic Park may be interested in breeding children's pets and believes that the concept is unnecessary. They'll be making plenty of money without having to do that. John Arnold. Uh, Arnold here is insisting that the security guards find Nedry right away on page 201. He's losing patience. This is important. He's very upset. He's lashing out at Nedry in frustration, saying he's a fat slob while describing him. There's a security officer. The security officer who's helping Arnold look for Nedry says he can't find him anywhere. He's not entirely sure which person Nedry is, and he needs to confirm whether or not he is the fat man. Jimmy. Jimmy works down at the main lobby, and he saw Nedry head down to the garage on 201. Robert Muldoon, hearing that Nedry had gone down into the garage, perks his attention. That's where his missing Jeep was. Perhaps Nedry has taken his Jeep. He puts two and two together, remarking, Jesus. Dr. Harding. Dr. Harding's driving a gas-powered Jeep and screeches to a stop apologetically on page 201. He was avoiding slamming into a herd of apatosaurs. He says they, quote, hardly ever take the cars out at night on page 202, and he admits he's occasionally out at night visiting a sick animal once in a while, and a herd of apatosaurs can be blocking the road for more than an hour. From the Jeep, Harding, I guess, can play a recording of the Tyrannosaurus roar. That's kind of neat. And he has to slam on the brakes again before driving over a small flock of compies crossing the road near the Jungle River on page 203. Knowing that the compies are likely off to find a dead or dying animal in the night, they're tempted to follow them and see what comes of it. Uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler. She's riding with Dr. Harding in the gas-powered Jeep, impeded from returning to the visitor center by a herd of apatosaurs. She's very curious about the apatosaurs, too, on page 202. Ellie rides in the back seat of the Jeep. Obviously, Gennaro rides in the front seat on page 203, therefore. Uh, they've been out on the road for 20 minutes in the pouring rain and see nothing. have seen nothing since the apatosaurs. Then they spot the compies, and she wishes that Grant were here to see them. Uh, because, recall, these are the animals that they've been investigating after one had their remains faxed to him back in Montana. Recall that? That was a while ago. Apatosaurus. I heard of these are walking around, but happen to be blocking the road Sattler, Gennaro, and Harding were using to return to the visitor compound on page 201. There are six of them. They're each the size of a house, and they, quote, lumber. 
What they heard is a baby the size of a full-grown horse on page 202. They're entirely unfazed by the Jeep and its headlights to a point where it's considered that they don't even see the Jeep and its riders. They just see the Jeep as strange, smelly objects. A recording of a Tyrannosaurus roaring can get the herd moving. Not that they care about the Tyrannosaurus, they're too big to worry about predators, which is contrary to what Regis said earlier when he said the T-Rex would hunt the Apatosaurus if she could back on the tour. They can break a Tyrannosaurus neck with the swipe of their tail. Procomsignathus. These are crossing the road when they drive by, and Ellie identifies them as a critter that resembles a specimen they were hoping to identify on page 203. They're little and dark green, described as scurrying. They squat on their hind legs and chitter. Harding says the compies don't usually move at night, rather they spend the nights up in trees, which is kind of neat, and they're said to be scavengers, like buzzards. They have tr- a tremendously sensitive sense of smell and can sense a dying animal for miles. Localities. The dining room in Hammond's bungalow. The dining room is found inside Hammond's bungalow. It isn't fully staffed yet, but it still produces excellent dinners. The bungalow. Hammond has a private bungalow just for him on the island, which has a dining room we know of, and it is in a secluded corner of the park not far from the labs. Wu admits it is elegant with sparse, almost Japanese lines. This is where Wu and Hammond had their version 4.4 conversation earlier, where the bungalow is described as being in the northern sector of the park, set back among the palm trees. And there is also a living room in it. Isla Nublar. The eastern part of the island has some places where fresh ginger root grows. It's used to make ice cream, and I hope, too, to make sarsaparillas. But alas, there's no actual mention of it. But let's make that headcanon. There are home-brewed sudsy sarsaparillas on the menu at Le Gigantes, at the three-star restaurant headed by the world-renowned chef Alain Richard. As well, Arnold gives us a decent list of facilities around the visitor center, including the maintenance building and the utility shed, while listing where to look for Nedry. On the Jeep's drive back... It takes about 20 minutes to get to the Jungle River, which is off somewhere to their left on 203. And recall Nedry was killed and abandoned his jeep near the river, where the Dilophosaurs are commonly found. Jurassic Park Europe. Attractive land in the Azores is already leased, and construction is set to embark next year on page 201. The Azores, for those Europeanly challenged like me, are in Portugal. Jurassic Park Japan. The land for Jurassic Park Japan near Guam was obtained, quote, long ago, as Wu would know, says Hammond. For a dummy like me, I had to look up that Guam is triangulated sort of in the center of Japan, the Philippines, and Papua New Guinea, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Both these parks are said to be open within the next four years. Illusions and references. We have Genentech and Cetus. Quote, you'll remember the original genetic engineering companies like Genentech and Cetus were all started to make pharmaceuticals. New drugs for mankind. Noble, noble purposes. On page 200. Recall, we are told in this novel, Genentech was launched in April 1976 by venture capitalist Robert Swanson and biochemist Herbert Boyer, founded to exploit Boyer's or Boyer's gene splicing techniques, which quickly became the largest and most successful of the genetic engineering startups, as we discussed back in episode one, introduction. And Cetus came up earlier in the chapter, target of opportunity, which, oopsies, I didn't list as an illusion at that time. Bad on me. So Cetus Corporation was founded at Berkeley, California in 1971, which is now Novartis, which is most related to this novel for its, quote, revolutionary DNA amplification technique called PCR, or the polymerase chain reaction, which is a technique that amplifies a small DNA sample so it can be amplified into a large enough amount so it can be studied in detail. Developed by this company, its inventor, Kari or Kerry Mullis, won the Nobel Prize in 1993. Cetus has most notably created pharmaceuticals that benefit improved immunity and treatments for multiple sclerosis. Novartis today makes everything from generic over-the-counter drugs to vaccines, contact lenses, animal health, and much more. Whereas Genentech has drugs which help treat all kinds of cancer diagnoses 
as well as flus and bacterial infections, etc. They're both still around, they're both still doing great, and I don't think the government has ever stepped in and made them give away their products for free. When Hammond says, suppose you make a miracle drug for cancer, as Genentech did, he may be referencing Herceptin, which would treat breast cancers. In 1986, while this book was being written and researched, the human oncogene HER2 was cloned, and it was observed that the overexpression of the product of this gene occurred in between 20 to 25% of breast cancers, which became known as HER2-positive breast cancers. Herceptin was developed sometime in the mid-1980s. The Japanese are alluded to. Creighton frequently has comments about, quote, the Japanese. And perhaps we can look into what that's all about at some point. We, we know that the Japanese investors are said to be the only ones patient enough to make long-term commitments to the development of Jurassic Park. We know that Hammond and the park have employed lots of Japanese manufacturers and designers to get the park set up. And here Hammond is greedily considering that the Japanese will make good customers because they see high price tags as a status symbol, like Americans do. But the Japanese, quote, of course, have a lot more money. <laughs> Hammond believes on 200. This wording certainly suggests Hammond is aiming to take advantage of the Japanese because of their disposable incomes and appetite for status symbol buying behavior. I don't know if that's true in any way, but that's how it reads. Presumably, this is how Crichton intends for you to read it. And then he writes Rising Sun, all about Japanese tech companies in California, if you want to see more about what Crichton really thinks of the Japanese. Stylistic techniques. We have italics. The children of the world love dinosaurs, and the children are going to delight, just delight, in this place. Something will force you to see reason and sell your drugs at a lower cost, we're told on 200. Nobody needs entertainment, again on 200. Find him, stresses Arnold. Look in the maintenance building, look in the utility shed, look everywhere, but just find him. Uh, these are all good examples of people stressing what is important. They're making important instructions, consequential things. A lot of people are making arguments and being persuasive, so italics here are using that. When Harding says we don't mean anything to them, he's talking about the apatosaurs. He's emphasizing the idea that they actually have no agency in a world where dinosaurs are, are so big that they don't, you, you, don't, you, you just don't matter. Uh, so that's an interesting perspective there. And finally, Hammond says, well, they can't do that, Hammond says rather petulantly, just to do research. And then I'm sure it would be interesting for scientists to do research. Here Hammond is, is arguing that, sure, research has its merits, but uh, you can't stop me from doing this. I'm trying to make more money. Research just isn't important. We use the semicolon in uh, page 200. After all, you invented the drug. You paid to develop and test it. You should be able to charge whatever you wish. The first clause in the sentence is kind of laying out the facts. The second is laying out Hammond's argument. He should be allowed to do whatever he wants. He wants free will. Ellipses. It's an old man's vice ice cream, but still ellipses. Here Hammond insists that Wu have some ice cream, admitting at his age it's unwise to eat dairy? Or cold things? There's some idea that he's been instructed not to eat ice cream, but he does it anyhow. It's one of his vices. The ellipses sort of serves as a shrug, saying without words, meh, who cares, or something. But in a more old-fashioned sort of tone. I'm afraid... Ellipses. I may not live to see it, Henry, on 199. I like this ellipsis because I can imagine Wu anticipating Hammond to say something predictable, and then he says, uh, you know, he completely dives into how selfish he is instead. If you were to start a bioengineering company, Henry, what would you do? Would you make products to help mankind to fight illness and disease? Question mark. He's not asking. He's framing his argument. If I charge $5,000 a day for my park, who's going to stop me? Challenges Hammond. Speaking of the rest of the world, ellipses, says Wu. The thing is, ellipses, the security guard doesn't want to give Arnold the bad news that they believe Nedry has left the compound. That's how upset Arnold is in this moment. 
But did they see us? I mean, if we were to get out of the car, ellipses, here Sattler is suggesting, <laughs> what could we do to make the Apatosaurus see us? Things like that. M-dash, the children of the world love dinosaurs, and the children are going to delight, just delight, in this place. That's uh, just delight is separated in a little parenthesis there. I'm familiar with this, John, on page 200, as Wu tries to interrupt Hammond from launching into another one of his old speeches, but he fails. FDA testing alone takes five to eight years. M-dash, if you're lucky. On page 200, suppose you make a miracle drug for cancer or heart disease. M-dash, as Genentech did. Sick people aren't going to pay $1,000 for a dose of needed medication. M-dash, they won't be grateful. They'll be outraged. Something will force you to see reason. M-dash, and to sell your drug at a lower cost. And quote, you will recall that the original purpose behind pointing my company in this direction in the first place. M-dash, was to have freedom from government intervention anywhere in the world, on page 200. But if there were attempts to close down M-dash, Wu doesn't even get to the end of that sentence before Hemming cuts him off. So here, the M-dash is separating thoughts, and I guess uh, during conversation, and as well, uh, there are interruptions here as Wu isn't getting his words in edgewise. Comparisons. The herd of apatosaurs are compared to a herd of elephants, and the apatosaurs are so big they don't regard the jeep as anything to concern themselves with, whereas a herd of elephants would re have reacted pretty proactively uh, circling the jeep to protect the baby. So they are so much bigger than elephants that uh, they see the world totally differently. Literary techniques. Metaphor. Their little faces will shine with joy of finally seeing these wonderful animals. This is sort of a trope on the idea that one smile can light up a room, that a big smile is illuminating, and obviously their little faces shouldn't literally shine unless they are horribly irradiated. Um, quote, they were now watching the storm lash the big glass windows on page 202, noting that the storm has achieved personification and now it lashes the windows as if it were punishing it. And similes, you know compies are scavengers, like buzzards, says Harding, relating the compies to an animal we know. This may be a true comparison rather than a simile, but um, he uses the word like, so there we go. Motifs, the illusion of control. Here, the consequences of believing in the illusion of control are spelled out clearly on 198. Wu isn't entirely convinced that the dinosaurs are breeding, but if they are... That has game-changing consequences for the park. Quote, If the dinosaurs were in fact breeding, then everything about Jurassic Park was called into question. Their genetic development methods, their genetic control methods, everything. Even the lysine dependence might be suspect. And take note. I want to think that all of these... I, I'm going to make the argument at some point. Basically, everything they were attempting to do, they were not succeeding at. And this is the line that gives me that... Uh, the strength of conviction to say, I think that all of their systems of control are folly. Uh, discussion. Wu the genius. We've discussed in passing that Dr. Henry Wu is a true genius, and Crichton specifically employs heightened vocabulary in this chapter to emphasize that Wu thinks on a different level. Part of making Wu seem like a genius is performed through his vocabulary. Quote, in part, it was an emotional liability, flaring anger one moment, maudlin sentimentality the next. On page 198, here Crichton is putting all his $10 words in one sentence, and he's doing it to make Dr. Henry Wu seem like a genius. Movie adaptations. I believe the film adapted this scene in the novel into the scene when you get uh, Sattler and Hammond later on kind of discussing things. There are plenty of reasons to make the parallel, but mostly it's because they're all eating ice cream in the scene here, and that's what they're doing in the film. Feminism. Maria makes the most wonderful ginger ice cream on page 199. She's a beautiful, silent girl who draws the look of Wu as she leaves the dining room. 
That's the next woman we meet. Control is a hoax. While Wu is considering the consequences of a breeding population and how that signals their control mechanisms are failing, Crichton lists a few areas of concern. Genetic development, genetic control methods, everything. Those three things. <laughs> and then the following sentence, he singles out a final area of concern that may be failing, the lysine dependency. Recall, as I'm sure you can, that the lysine contingency requires that the animals all be given a specific regular dose of lysine in tablet form, or else they slip into a coma and die within 12 hours. It doesn't say with what frequency the lysine must be administered, but here's the rub. Wu believes their confidence in the lysine contingency is suspect. If he is uncertain of its efficacy, that would suggest that it hasn't been experimented with successfully. If they'd experimented and concluded, yes, these animals are lysine-dependent, and yes, they go into a coma after 12 hours and die as a result, then they should not be uncertain. But Wu does feel it's now suspicious, suggesting that they did not successfully experiment that the lysine contingency may not work after all. And this falls in line with what we've learned so far. The animals are too precious, too valuable, and frankly too special to let die for any reason. Recall, only one in every 250 eggs ever survive into viable park attractions. While amphibian DNA is used to explain why the animals could, could spontaneously change gender, I don't suppose that would also explain why they might be immune to the lysine contingency. But it does show that their faith in the control systems is shaken. Perhaps the animals can survive the lysine contingency because of some other unforese unforeseen future in the DNA that hasn't been observed yet. Or, as I like to think, none of their control mechanisms work. We'll see later that the Dilophosaurus, who are not bred with the amphibian DNA, are also observed performing mating rituals along the Mesozoic Jungle River, suggesting that their populations are also sexually heterogeneous, without hermaphroditism. Maybe hermaphroditism was re never required at all, that the labs just failed at all their control measures. That's a theory, and one that I like, but I'm not sure we'll get enough evidence through the novel to confirm that conclusively, but we'll see. Payoffs. There is a lot of setup in this novel, making sure that all of Chekhov's guns are put above all the, f the fireplace mantles so that they can go off later in the screenplay. In this case, Nedry transmitting data and the storm are already put in place to explain why the monitor and phone lines aren't functioning, so they disregard the problems rather than looking to solve them because they expect everything's fine. Entrepreneurship. Hammond admits he believed Nedry was a genius in his own way, but that he had to be pressed quite hard toward the end to make sure he got things right. Again, anyone who's been a lead for a large project or even home renovations knows to get things done and done right and done right now, you got to put it in Hammond's words, press quite hard. Somebody's got to be driven to keep things on schedule. And Hammond is the guy that continues to push and pull Jurassic Park into existence. This is almost like a birthing analogy. He's going through all these labor pains to deliver the park on time to make his creation come to life. Everybody else is telling him to settle down or make changes, but they're not the ones with the vision. They're not driven to make this park a reality. It's just their jobs. Yes, Wu began, e began eager to make a name for himself, but now he finds the work routine, that he's performing too many administrative duties, and the captivating gene sequencing is almost fully automated. The park doesn't really need him anymore, and he laments, now that he's sort of disposable, Hammond no longer listens to him. In this chapter, he, quote, dutifully dips his spoon in the ice cream to eat, and the dutifully here shows that Wu obeys, always obeys, and always has. He's not the leader of the cloning program, he's just another employee at Hammond's disposal now. Arnold is just working at another in a long line of amusement parks. Nedry is just a contractor. <clears throat> 
He was just a contractor. Regis isn't doing what he loves to do, encouraging talented individuals to produce captivating marketing campaigns. Instead, he's stuck covering up quote-unquote construction accidents and babysitting the owner's grandkids. Muldoon fights with Hammond for every inch he can get, and rightly so, just to even have armaments in the park to defend themselves in the event of an incident. Ahem, another incident, which he believes is inevitable. With all these professionals that Hammond hired to work for him and do his bidding to make his vision a reality, they're all frustrating him by putting up barriers, applying the brakes, keeping him from achieving his goals, and he's so close to making his dream come true. So yeah, Hammond is pushy. He has to be. It's almost literally an act of his individual will and vision that he achieved the impossible. Without Hammond, Jurassic Park is impossible, and it couldn't have been willed into existence by anyone else, and therefore by anyone who would have done it sanely. (laughs) Only someone so psychopathic could have willed such a crazy place into existence, and because it would require someone of such character to have been willed into existence, there's no other way it could have happened. Jurassic Park was a catastrophe waiting to happen and doomed to failure because it was conceived in psychopathy and in no way was there ever going to be a sane conclusion to this story. Madness begets madness, and in this case, a freaking Tyrannosaurus too. (laughs) Neutering the dinosaurs. Frequently, we talk in this novel how the science is next level, but the writing itself doesn't exactly top isn't exactly top drawer. We've chuckled a few times in admitting that Crichton was a best-selling author, but he'll never be mistaken for one of the greats of the English canon with Orwell and Dickens, Steinbeck and Hemingway, or Atwood and Ondaatje, but his character design for Henry Wu might be a low-key expression of real genius. And hear me out. Wu was once, quote, eager to make a name for himself, the top of his classic, equipped and capable of continuing the legacy of Norman Atherton's lab, which created the pygmy elephant that captured the imagination of investors and floated the construction of Jurassic Park. Wu was the protege to follow in Atherton's footsteps, recruited to take a shot at the impossible, and he did it! He cloned extinct animals from impossible sources of DNA to bring living, breathing dinosaurs so authentic that the world's foremost paleontologist agrees they are true dinosaurs. A certifiable genius and wunderkind who was orphaned, but then nurtured and encouraged by his next benefactor, John Hammond, to achieve the impossible. He was incredibly empowered and did incredible things with that power. We learn in episode 25, version 4.4, that for two years now, Wu has become merely an administrator, supervising teams of researchers and banks of computer-operated gene sequencers on 125. Making dinosaurs at Jurassic Park has become routine, and the process is all figured out. He feels like he's not needed anymore. Now in this chapter, rather than pursuing his intellectual curiosities, like looking for the frog DNA in his gene sequences, or even investigating why the monitors and telephones are malfunctioning, he, quote, dutifully dips his spoon in the ice cream because Hammond tells him to. And as we said a couple times before now, he obeys, he always obeys, and he always has. Crichton has written a character here who was tasked to neuter all the animals at Jurassic Park. And in the process, it is he who has become the neutered. Well played, Crichton. Narrative. In this chapter, especially on page 200, we get Hammond making his argument against helping people. And this one... And this is one of the primary examples where Michael Crichton makes a fairly bold argument, but doesn't offer any space for the counter-argument. And as my guest from episode 32, Control, Matt Bufton, commented, this is Hammond's perspective, but it's not necessarily true fact. It's just his opinion, man. And there's no one there to counter his opinion. Similarly, Wu shares his this opinion. Qu- quote, Wu heard this argument before, and he knew Hammond was right, on page 200. 
Later on, Malcolm will challenge Sattler on the devastation and harm that research and discovery create. Think of all the lab animals that are sacrificed to medical experimentation, or in the novel's case, the harm to the earth that's created during intrusive geological excavations, or in the oil and gas industry, etc. There are myriad examples. As guest Adam Pritchard identified in episode 30, Control, Malcolm argues against scientific discovery because it's harmful and intrusive, even saying that scientists want it that way and calls it the rape of the natural world, just like in the movie. But Sattler, in this case, offers no argument, or counter-argument, on page 285. So Crichton isn't exploring themes here, or morality or issues. He's already picked a side that works for his narrative and builds this up. This is like world-building, but in terms of making an argument. It's also a bit of a house of cards. So when we characterize this novel, we will characterize it as a, on a specific side of an argument, in this case anti-science, and equally anti-industry. That rushing out onto the cutting edge of sciences as an, as an entrepreneur is fraught with perils. And this is, I think, accepted as a fairly common observation in Crichton novels. When you read that sort of statement, you can know that Jurassic Park is solid, solidly built in that mold without any resistance. Ancestries. Hammond makes specific mention of Maria's ancestry, noting that she's not from Costa Rica, she's from Haiti, and that her mother was French. Now, I imagine that's most likely suggesting that she is a French speaker, as in as is common in Haiti. But, I mean, her mother could have immigrated from France to Haiti, but, that's, but it's notable that Hammond specifically mentions Maria's heritage. Then Hammond makes an allusion to Wu perhaps being Japanese. When Hammond is describing the new Jurassic Park he's building, he f- says first that J- Jurassic Park Europe is in the Azores, and then to Wu, and you know that the property in Guam for Jurassic Park Japan was obtained, quote, long ago. It's not entirely spelled out. Sure, Wu has been on board with Jurassic Park for four or five years, and the property was leased apparently long ago, so it might be a matter of record with top management around the park, but there's no special mention that Wu would certainly know about the Jurassic Park Europe or the Azores. But he would know about Jurassic Park Japan in Guam, which might be a reference to Hammond being like, well, you're Japanese, so of course you know that Jurassic Park Japan is already in the plans, too. This is only interesting in that... Wu may not necessarily be a Japanese name. The name is surely Asian, but the surname Wu, according to Wikipedia, is a very common Chinese name, and also well-documented in Korea. I suppose Wu could be from anywhere in the world, including California, but there's this suggestion that Hammond believes Wu is Japanese here, and that he's incorrect. And that's interesting in that he appears to take an interest in the qualities of his staff in the park, but they're entirely superficial. It also would put Wu on parallel with the wait staff in Hammond's private quarters, that Hammond has a superficial interest in their lives, caring rather to know about what they're made of rather than who they are. Money, 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 money! In four years, Hammond believes direct revenues will exceed $10 billion a year, and merchandising, television, and ancillary rights should double that, $20 billion. And that's speaking conservatively. So that's what's at stake here. That's why Hammond is so driven. The dinosaurs. Harding tells us that the dinosaurs have excellent visual acuity on page 202, but they have a basic amphibian visual system. It's attuned to movement. They don't see unmoving things well at all. This explains more plainly why the Tyrannosaur couldn't find Dr. Grant earlier. Hammond also says in this chapter that the dinosaurs and the biotechnology they use is far too expensive to resort to research on page 202. It can only be supported as entertainment. That's just the way it is. God complex. Face the damn facts, Henry. This isn't America. This isn't even Costa Rica. This is my island. I own it. And nothing is going to stop me from opening Jurassic Park to all the children of the world. Or at least to the rich ones. And I tell you, they'll love it.
on page 203. Here, Hammond is separating himself from the law, from national jurisdictions, the EPA, other scientists. It's his belief that he's above it all. This is his island. He is the creator. He is almost like Dr. Frankenstein. The park is his creation, and he's going to use it to get rich. All right, just as we're about ready to sign off today, I want to thank again the insightful and good-souled Melissa Ray for coming on the podcast. Melissa, it's great to catch up. Thanks for being so forthcoming and honest. And I, I totally forgot to bring up the movie Night Lights, which everyone should hear about. Melissa's got this biz selling movie night lights. Movie night lights are VHS lamps made from pre-loved VHS cassettes. And all VHS are 100% authentic and are not reproductions. So the cassette and jacket feature all the regular wear and tear you'd expect from a beloved film. The pre-loved VHS cassettes of your favorite movies are fixed up to create unique movie collectibles. And they're outfitted with 12-volt LED strip light and a 10-inch USB connection, which connects to any (laughs) 5-volt... USB adapter, VHS sleeve cover, and 16-color function remote control come with it. And once it's plugged in and on the shelf, the cassette and sleeve are like a dazzling little piece of your fandom on display. They're really cool. And you can check them out on Instagram by searching for Movie Night Lights. Thanks again, Melissa. I hope Marla Evans reappears to order one. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. I said a bunch of controversial things in this episode. You can disagree with me all you like. Uh, just drop me a line. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me or on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.